Good morning. Welcome to today's class. And as we approach Rosh Hashanah, and the Parsha is Parshas Ki Savo. Today we will be discussing the Parsha in uh, a little bit of detail, but also we will be looking at the broad overview of the Parsha. And specifically, <clears throat> we are looking to discuss Bikurim, which are the first fruits. And the title for today's class is, It's All in the Approach. Kodesh Elul is sponsored by Nat and Eti Perez and family for the success of their children. And Le'iloi Nishmas, David Ben Masoda, Zichrono Livracha, David Biton, beloved father and grandfather. His dedication and great midos are dearly missed on his third yard site. Uh, I've spoken about the Perez family in the past. Uh, I'm not going to do so again today. But to say that uh, may it, in addition to the merit of our Torah learning, but hopefully everybody's preparation for Rosh Hashanah during this month of El will also be a merit for the benefit of his neshama. This week is also anonymously sponsored in Achar Satov to Rabbi Akiva and his wife families for their teaching and sharing Torah. May our learning be a merit for our children and grandchildren to find Shaduchim with clarity and speedily and abundant Shalom bias plus, of course, the Rafua Shalema for all in need. One of the challenges most of us face is the ability to be positive on a constant basis. Some of us even have difficulty in acquiring a happy outlook or disposition, even for a brief time period. Now, there is a plethora of data demonstrating that positive attitudes are a huge health benefit. One of the issues we're going to be dealing with today is that given the fact that most people do want to live longer and be healthier, that it is true that having a positive attitude is healthy, then since that is the case, why is it so difficult for people to kind of shift gears in their brain, become more positive, and generally speaking, looking for good type people? So here's a brief excerpt from the staff at the Mayo Clinic regarding some of the health benefits of positive thinking. And this is the article. Is your glass half empty or half full? And how you answer this age old question about positive thinking may reflect your outlook on life, your attitude toward yourself, and whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, and it may even affect your health. Indeed, some studies show that personality traits such as optimism and pessimism can affect many areas of your health and well-being. The positive thinking that usually comes with optimism is a key part of effective stress management. And effective stress management, of course, is associated with many health benefits. If you tend to be pessimistic, don't despair. You can learn positive thinking skills. And so here are some of the actual bullet points of the health benefits of positive thinking. The health benefits of positive thinking may provide and include increased lifespan, lower rates of depression, lower levels of distress and pain, greater resistance to illnesses, right? Imagine if as the flu season comes upon us, the positive thinking attitude can actually stave off becoming ill with the flu, better psychological and physical well-being, better cardiovascular health, and reduced risk of death from cardiovascular disease and stroke. I really recommend that you look this up. 
because especially anybody dealing with that as a genetic factor, um, there are many, many articles that talk about the power of positivity and preventing heart disease. Reduced risk of death from cancer. Reduced risk of death from respiratory conditions. Reduced risk of death from infections. And as we mentioned earlier, better, better coping skills during hardships and times of stress. So obviously the benefits of thinking positively and looking for the good are enormous. So I suggest that from Parshas Kisavo, we can learn profound insights on how to acquire a positive mindset and the philosophical underpinnings that explain why positive thinking makes sense and that it is not just an exercise in making pretend or constructing an imaginary world. And I think people who tend to be intellectually honest think of this idea of, well, just adopt a positive attitude and things are better is just an illusion. Therefore, the bottom line is that we have to understand if it's truthful and useful to engage in a reality quest for seeking positive thinking and not just simply let's buy into an illusion or an imaginary world. So if we look at a few sentences in Rashi comments from the beginning of Parshas Ki Savo, this will start our exploration on the subject. So this is right at the beginning of the Parsha. It's chapter 26 at the beginning of that chapter in Sefer Devar. When you enter the land that your God Hashem is giving you as a heritage and you possess it and settle in it, and you shall take some of the first of every fruit of your soil, which you harvest from the land that Hashem is giving you, put it in a basket and go to the place where your God Hashem will choose to establish the divine name. You shall go to the Kohen, translated as the priest in charge at that time, and say to him, I acknowledge this day before your God Hashem that I have entered the land that Hashem swore to our fathers to give to us. You shall then recite as follows before your God. My father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he, meaning our forefather Yaakov and eventually his children, there he became a great and very populous nation. And then the Torah recounts many miracles of the redemption and the fact that now we've received Eretz Yisrael and that now this person is bringing their new fruits and they put down the fruits in front of the Mizbeach. And then in the final sentence, the Torah says, and you shall be happy together with the family of the Levi and the stranger that is in your midst, all the bounty that your God Hashem has bestowed upon you and your household. So the point of these sentences is that, in, uh, including some that we didn't directly quote, is that when the Jewish people settled in Eretz Israel, they were required to bring from the first fruits of the land to the Kohen in the Beis Amikdash on an annual basis. Now the bringer of these fruits would then recite a brief historical account describing the great kindnesses Hashem has bestowed upon our people by redeeming us from Egypt with great miracles, bringing us to Eretz Israel, providing us the ability to conquer it and enjoy the special fruits of Eretz Israel. So now here are two comments from Rashi that highlight two important points. First of all, the Torah says, when you come into the land, possess it 
and settle therein. Says Rashi that this tells us that the Jews were not under the obligation to bring the first fruits until they had conquered the land and divided it. Now we know from Navi, from Sefer Yoshua, that that took approximately 14 years. So that means for the first 14 years that the Jewish people were living in the land of Israel, the obligation of bringing the first fruits, what we call the mitzvah of Bikurim, was not yet triggered. Then, Rashi tells us, when the Torah says, you shall take of the first fruit of all the fruit of the ground, of the first fruits, says Rashi, but not all the first fruits. For not all fruits are subject to the duty of bringing to the base of Mikdash, the temple, their first fruits. Only the seven main kinds of products of the, Jew, of the land of Israel, for which the land of Israel is praised, because there we learn from the phrasing of the sentence, the word Eretz is mentioned, and elsewhere the Torah tells us that the land of Israel is a land of wheat and grape and pomegranate and fig and olive oil and date, so therefore, and barley, so therefore it's only the seven species that are required to take from them of their first fruits on an annual basis to bring them up to the Holy Temple. That's a point, a second point that Rashi mentions that here too, the Torah speaking only of the distinguished products of the land of Israel, which are the seven species only. So from these two comments of Rashi, we see that the obligation of bringing the first fruits of the land only applies after the Jewish people conquered and divided Eretz Israel, and as mentioned, that took 14 years, and that additionally, it's only the seven species of the land that need to be brought to the base of Mikdash and used in this special Bikurim ceremony. So here are three questions. Why indeed is the Bikurim obligation only triggered after the land was conquered and divided and not upon eating any of these food items? One would have thought that in our first opportunity, or certainly the first year that we're there and new crops of these fruits grow, but before all the land is finished being conquered or divided, we should have an obligation to bring these first fruits. Now, of course, we talk about the base of Mikdash and in the early days, it wasn't the base of Mikdash, it was the Mishkan, but the meaning is the same. So why not become obligated immediately upon enjoying the new crops of these seven species? Why should it only be after the Jewish people have fully conquered, fully divided, and therefore settled the land of Israel, that then Bikurim is required. That's question number one. Question number two, why does the Torah even bother mentioning entering the land with the phrase ki savo, when you come? The Torah simply could have said, it will be when you conquer and settle the land. But yet the name of our parasha, which is ki savo, means when you first enter it. It doesn't mean when you settle it, it doesn't mean when you divide it. So why is the Torah even mentioning that? Really, the Torah should say, the hayaki yarashta es when you inherit the land or when you settle the land, which means divided the land. So why are we talking about kisavo, the entering at all? Question number three, the Bikurim ceremony seems to primarily be a demonstration of appreciation and thanks to Hashem for his redeeming us from Egypt and bequeathing us a home life. Now, I don't mean that that's a small thing, that's a huge thing. But the point is that that seems to be the essential lesson of this mitzvah, appreciating the miracles and the fact that we ended up 
with such an incredible portion of Eretz Yisrael. So if that's the case, why should we not be required to bring other products of the land as a sign of our appreciation, right? The miracles of Egypt happened regardless of the land of Israel. And the land of Israel isn't only B7 species, right? It's everything, uh, you know. Many of us are particular to some of the special products of the land of Israel. I personally really appreciate the sunflower seeds. I'm sure many of you have your other favorites that are not necessarily just of the seven species. Don't get me wrong, the grape and the wine from Israel in these last few decades is amazing. But the point is that there's so much for which to be thankful. Why should we be only highlighting these seven species? So what I'd like to suggest as a beginning to our answer, because we are going to discuss a little bit of the rest of the Parsha along the way, is that perhaps the understanding of this idea of kisavo, when you will enter, is that the Torah is pointing out and teaching us that in order to benefit from a new experience, a relationship, a new environment into which we are placed, it is critical to be able to be open to all that may be available now and in the future of this new relationship experience or paradigm. And I'm gonna give a really interesting example in a minute from uh, the Gemara and Sanhedrin, but the point philosophically behind this idea that we need to be open to all the good things, whether it's insights and learning or actual new physical benefits of various new relationships or experiences, the philosophical point is is that it's really only possible to see or to receive or to experience that which we open our minds to allow ourselves to see, to receive, or to experience. Many of us get locked into a certain way of thinking, and therefore we don't even see the reality that's in front of us. It's not available to us because we haven't opened ourselves to it. One of the great ways to understand this is a concept called the paradigm shift. Simple example uh, that uh, I learned in this course, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is imagine trying to get into a building and you push on the door to enter. And it takes a minute to realize that actually the, do the door is meant to be pulled instead of pushed, right? So a person is pushing and pushing. Now, most of us can rapidly process that at this point. But imagine if it was hard to think, so to speak, differently and think to pull instead of to push. Okay, so, but regardless of that particular example, we actually have a tremendous place in the Talmud that teaches us this concept in a fundamental of Judaism. And that is in the concept of the resurrection of the dead. So we have a Mishnah that many of us are familiar that talk about the fact that all Jews have a share in the world to come. And the Talmud says that if a Jew does not accept the idea that resurrection is indicated in the written Torah, he will not have a share in the ever after future of the resurrection. That means unless a Jew says, I know that resurrection is true and that it's hinted or indicated in the Torah, not only the five books, but all the written Torah, there are many references that are available to us to learn hints or indicators that the resurrection is true. If a person says to himself, this is the way Rashi explains the passage in the Talmud. The person says to himself, I know that there's a resurrection of the dead, but the Torah never speaks about it. But in my concept of what makes sense, there must be a resurrection and an infinite future. 
says Rashi, that person will not experience a share in the world to come post the resurrection of the dead. And the question is why, why not? And my answer is very simple. And there's two very critical pieces that come out of this understanding. The fact that I think something to be true, even if I happen to guess correctly, it's my imagination of it that is what's available to me. I'm not necessarily having in mind what it really is, right? So for example, today, many people might think that Mashiach is all about, you know, sitting on a beach somewhere and, you know, having a drink and, uh, you know, having a pleasant uh, weather experience. Uh, that's not what Mashiach is really all about. And if that's what a person thinks that Mashiach is all about, even if somehow they're alive at the time of Mashiach, Mashiach experience may pass them by without them really benefiting from it because they think it's all about drinking, uh, you know, having a little bit of a good time on an ocean somewhere with pleasant weather, right? The idea of what resurrection really is, is not just my imagination of living forever. It's whatever experience of the infinite future that Hashem has in mind, so to speak, for us. And we're not going to be available to experience that, to see that, unless we open our minds to allow for that and to recognize Hashem is teaching us about the resurrection through the Torah and for a different time are all the very many interesting indicators that the Talmud points out and different nuances of the resurrection that we would not think of us on our own, but that the Talmud helps us to understand through these hints in the written Torah. But the bottom line is that for any new relationship and for any new experience and any new learning, what's critical is the approach. How we think from the beginning that we are opening our minds to learn something new that we may never have thought of on our own. And obviously this is hard to do. Now, specifically in a relationship of the other, it is essential that we be open to the other in a relationship because our imagination is limited by self, right? We only know what we know. We only think what we think. We can only conceive or imagine what comes to our mind, but that's different than what somebody else can share with us or teach us. And kal v'chomer, meaning a for on top of a for how much Hashem has to offer to us and to teach to us. So, the idea of opening our mind in the approach is essential in order to gain all the tremendous benefits that could be available to us. Common example today, the land of Israel, for some people is about either the atmosphere or the beach in Tel Aviv or the nightlife somewhere, or just about wonderful views, but not necessarily about all the wisdom that's available there, not necessarily even understanding that the agriculture itself can continue to be improved upon and the fruits of the land can be expanded upon. And even the Talmud says us that the land itself will expand in the future. All of the real potential of the land of Israel is there, but it's only available to us if we open our minds to it. And therefore the Torah says, when we enter Eretz Yisrael, even before the mitzvah of Bikurim is triggered, we have to understand that we're entering a paradigm of endless abundance and goodness from Hashem. And we have to open ourselves to the fact that we will have a process by which to engage in every year 
that we not only appreciate what we had, but that speaks to how much more is also potentially available. And this is hard for people to do. In general, people enjoy the status quo. People like to think that, yeah, I know what that's all about. How many times have you had a conversation where you're telling somebody something or they're telling you something and one of you says, yeah, I know that already. You know, you might think you know it already. You may not know it already, especially you may not, not understand it from the other person's perspective, but we would like to think that we know. It's uncomfortable to admit that we don't know. And we have to get used to understanding that if we want to experience infinity, there's infinite things that we don't know. And that very often it is the other people in our lives that will help us understand things that we would not have thought of on our own. And this is a lesson in humility and a hard thing to do. In addition to that, it's also difficult because it's dependent on the other person and we don't like to have the risk of needing something else or you know, having somebody else kind of rock our world and our understanding and threaten it and challenge it. And that is something that we must understand about our relationship with Hashem and Eretz Yisrael and the mitzvah of the Bikurim is an essential place to learn it. So we are complacent. That means we think we know and we don't want to challenge ourselves to grow. There's inertia. Uh, you know, a lot of people are fond of saying that inertia is the most powerful force in the universe, right? The fact that things just stay as they are. Also, we're afraid of risk, as we mentioned. It's just easier to not open ourselves to new experience and understanding because that can require work. So as we learn from the laws of resurrection itself, the true resurrection that Hashem has in mind for us and the infinite future beyond that is simply not available unless we're willing to understand that Hashem, with whom we have a relationship, is going to present to us things that we couldn't possibly conceive of on our own. And if we think we know what resurrection is or that it will exist, but not that it's being presented to us by Hashem and we have to learn from Him what it is. We simply cannot experience it. And really, this is true of our relationships with one another. Since a human being has genuine, infinite existence and qualities, that's the truth of a human being's existence. God wanted all human beings to live forever. It is even available for all human beings, even the Noahides, people who are not Jewish can earn an infinite future if they accept the truth of the seven laws and live by them. That means that a human being by, being, by virtue of being created in the image of Hashem, always has within him the potential for new and unlimited aspects that are to be appreciated by the other person in the relationship. Of course, this is especially true in family and marriage when we have the opportunities to know people uh, in an intimate way on an ongoing basis. So here's an interesting thing that results in this mindset. Not only do we have the ability to learn and gain from the other, but it's also the secret to something that we call conflict resolution. A friend of mine was commenting to me this past week how it seems that today almost no people can achieve any conflict resolution. People choose their sides and they forever stay polarized from other people, whether it's Democrat, Republican, employee, employer, um, in a relationship, there can be friction and people can have um, a determination that they will forever remain separate from the other person. 
I recently have had this experience in my counseling some of the students. And unfortunately, there was a particular student that had suffered a really traumatic breakup when his parents got divorced and many members of the family in their nuclear family picked sides and then the extended family also picked sides. And this boy today is genuinely not open to the fact that it seems that some of the people around him are now many years later seeking peace. He says, I got used to the new situation. I don't wanna bother opening myself to these relationships. These people walked out on me. I didn't walk out on them. I wasn't the cause of the divorce. And now people are telling me I have to re-engage with other members of my family that I have already written off. And so my answer to him is that you're not wrong. None of this was your fault. And it's not genuinely your responsibility to fix what went wrong. But at the end of the day, if you do not stay open to the fact that other people, despite their foibles, despite their limitations, despite the hurt that they've done to you, if you do not stay open to the fact that, listen, despite all those inadequacies of other people, there may also be positives that they have, and there may be reasons to actually rebuild a relationship with them, then you will never have a relationship with them. And that cannot be good for you, the future family that you build, whether it's your children and your wife, and the repercussions are pretty much limitless if you stay apart. And the point is we have to understand that we need to stay open to who another person can be because people really do have qualities and a history that deserves to be understood and we need to have the opportunity ourselves to explore it by staying open to the resolution. So the real secret of conflict resolution is not only that I can change myself, and that's a huge piece, right? I can change myself and my you know, actions in any situation and relationship and conflict, but it's also that there is always more to see and appreciate in the other person. So I suggest that Eretz Yisrael is our most tangible reminder of the infinite goodness that Hashem bestows upon us because it's physical, and even the physical components of Eretz Yisrael are just unbelievable, right? The miraculous expansiveness of physical Eretz Yisrael, both in quantity and quality, should be a very stark reminder for us, which is why I'm suggesting that Bikurim is specifically from the fruits of Eretz Yisrael. Why? Because it's not only about appreciating everything that Hashem has done for us, it's appreciating the specific, unique qualities of Eretz Yisrael and how they represent the ongoing infinite goodness that Hashem makes available to us. Who would have imagined that the land of Israel in the last 60 years would have flourished the way that it does? That it has the military prowess based on intelligence that it has. That it has the ability to desalinate the water even though they don't have fresh water, there's plenty of water because Israel has figured out a technology to deal with that. That the most investment cap capital per capita in the world is being invested in the land of Israel. That new ideas that constantly blossom out of the land of Israel helps the Jewish people and helps the world. Who would have imagined 60, 70 years ago that this would be the result in such a short period of time? And as the Torah itself says, the fruit, the physical fruit of Eretz Yisrael can be enormous 
And that's just a sign or a symbol of all the incredible benefits, even the physical benefits that the land of Israel has to offer, and all the more so all the spiritual benefits of the land of Israel and what it has to offer. But in order to acquire it, when a person enters it, they need to be available in that mindset. I know a famous question that a lot of Jewish people have, religious and non-religious, is they went to the Kotel and they didn't feel all that much. That's a famous thing that many people experience, that they were ex expecting something and it didn't happen. I would suggest that in addition to other factors, and I'm not saying this is the end all be all to that answer, but in addition to other factors, if a person doesn't have an openness in their heart and in their mind as to their relationship with Hashem and the magnificent future that can be, it is very likely that when they experience even the land of Israel, which is so incredible in its own right, that it will be hard for them to see all the positives that are available. Now, that explains why it's upon entering the land that we have to have the mindset. And the reason that we only actually do Bikurim after we've conquered the land, because that's when the relationship that Eretz Yisrael represents, that God has given us the land, is really kicking in. It's at that moment that we have to genuinely appreciate the infinite future of this relationship, all the benefits of Eretz Yisrael, and everything that can be learned in an ongoing basis from Hashem. In addition to this section of Parshas Kisavo, we also have the section where the Torah tells us that when you enter the land, you have to set up the stones and the blessings and the curses on Mount Rizim and Mount Evil. And we have to, even before beginning to conquer it, we have to enter the land of Israel, understanding the pluses, which is all these incredible blessings that are available to us, but also the negatives, because this is not just a game. It isn't that, you know, there's only an upside and no downside. You have to take responsibility for the gifts that Hashem is is, is offering us by recognizing that we have a responsibility to live up to all the the things that Hashem wants to give us by behaving in the ways that we need to for our own sake. Otherwise, we can, God forbid, experience the opposite. So that's why another major theme of Parashas Kisavo is what we call the blessings and the curses of the land of Eva, of, of, of I'm sorry, Mount Rizim and Mount Evil, but the blessings and the curses that pertain to the land of Israel. So in addition to that, there's one other major feature uh, of the Parsha, which again, a lot of it is blessings and curses, but there's one other major feature that I want to highlight here today. And it's based on a Rashi comment at the end of Parshas Kisavo. And it essentially says like this, this is Rashi really commenting um, on a few different sentences. So first we have one sentence in this parasha that says, today you have become the people of the Lord your God. That means today, is the day that you have become a nation to Hashem. And it's hard to understand why that is true. Rashi does highlight that today means that it should always appear to you that you have newly entered the covenant, right? For those of us that have been married or are married, you know how wonderful it would be that every day of our marriage should be like the first day that we got married. And that's where Rashi's telling us is actually what Hashem is telling us in becoming his people, that we should look every day as entering new in that relationship of closeness with him. Now, at the end of the parasha, the Torah tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu tells this people that until this very day, 
you haven't understood. So that's what Rashi is commenting on in chapter 29, sentence three. This is what Rashi says. I have heard that on the day when Moshe gave the book of the Torah, the law, to, his, to the sons of Levi, that means to the tribe of Levi, he gave it to the Kohanim, the sons of Levi, and that's based on a sentence in Deuteronomy in Devarim 31.9, that when Moshe gave the Torah to his tribe, the people of Levi, all the rest of the Jewish people came before Moshe and said to him, Moshe Rabbeinu, we too stood at Sinai. We too accepted the Torah and it was given to us. So why do you then give it to the people of your tribe, of the tribe of Levi, like to control the Torah over us? Tomorrow, they might in fact say, you know what? You never got the Torah. The Torah was not for you. So Moshe rejoiced over this complaint that the Jewish people had, because essentially the people were saying, why are you only giving the Torah to the tribe of Levi? Give it to us as well. And that's when Moshe Rabbeinu actually did write a Torah scroll for each of the tribes and gave it to the entire Jewish people. So I would suggest that the reason that all of this is tying together so well in Parshas Kisavo is because in order to really have Torah, the way that the Torah is mentioned, it's not enough to say, well, you know, there are 613 commandments, X number of rabbinical requirements, and I'm good to go. The only proper way to have the Torah is to understand that Hashem wants us to continue learning from it all the time, more and new things. The Jewish people, until this day, Rashi says, had not demonstrated that desire to infinitely explore the Torah. Only the tribe of Levi demonstrated that penchant, that quest for Torah understanding and Torah knowledge. But when Moshe actually gave the Torah to the tribe of Levi, the rest of the Jewish people came to Moshe, essentially in the last day of his life, and said, we too received the Torah. We too want to have a type of relationship with the Torah like the tribe of Levi has, which means that the Torah is being ongoing, given to us by Hashem. We have the ability to learn more and more from it and new from it. Then Moshe Rabbeinu rejoices that today you are genuinely the true people of Hashem. Now, an interesting thing about the word Levi is that it means company or accompaniment. Levaya, which is to accompany a person to the next world, or Levi, which is Leah's way of saying that Yaakov would be her company and bond with her, and the tribe of Levi, that they live, so to speak, with Hashem. I don't know if that's where the Lord lived. Levi has anything to do with it. But the bottom line is that the idea of accompanying on a constant basis another person in a relationship is that it does not get boring because there's always more and new to appreciate about the other person. And so therefore, the Torah in this parsha is telling us we must appreciate that about the land of Israel. We must appreciate that about our relationship with Hashem, and we must appreciate about being the people of Hashem and having a Levi type of relationship with Hashem, which means to have a permanent commitment to learn from the Torah new and more things that Hashem is constantly making available for us to give us insight and benefits in all manners of our life and in all elements of future existence. So all of this is part of Parshas Kisavo. So the fact that it's difficult for people to think this way 
And the fact that for many people, they kind of want to have a more complacent and God forbid, even negative attitude about existence is actually something that the parasha is teaching us how to overcome. It's not an illusion and it's not imaginary to think that a person with whom I'm, I'm in a relationship and it's not everything that I want it to be, that it really could be better. It could become much better. Now, I'm not saying we should ignore the current reality, but I am saying, meaning if it's negative, but I am saying we need to be open to fixing because there's a much better future available if we come with the approach that it can be different. And it's hard, it's very, very hard to stay open to the approach that things can be different and better, especially when there's been a whole list of things that have not been good and there's been a long period of time or years where things have either stagnated or been full of friction and negativity, it's not easy. But at the end of the day, the Torah is telling us that the truth, the true philosophy is that every human being is capable of so much more, but it only becomes available to the other one in the relationship if we approach the relationship that way. And it's critical that when we begin, that we approach that way. That's why it's in the approach. That's why the Torah focuses on the word kisavo. When you enter, know that this is what's coming and know that you also need a practice of it. So as pertains to our relationships, not only looking for the positive in the person that we see, but trying to see the positive that we have not yet seen. Also, we have to give the other person the opportunity to not only know our grievances, but to know our appreciation and let them tell us about them and their positives and how they view, view things and how they you know, think in the relationship and we not only can change ourselves, but hopefully we can extract and learn much more from the other person when we make ourselves available for that. So I think that the land of Israel today is a very important reminder for us. We have to be open to even more greatness that's possible there. But also we need to not write off our fellow Jews. Right? Even though there are so many that it seems to be extremely difficult, uh, we need to stay open and to the hope and to the prayer that things can be better uh, with those that we disagree. And doesn't mean that we'll always get uh, that result, uh, but if we stay open to it, it's possible. Whereas if we close the door on it, it's actually impossible. And let's not forget that it's actually to our health benefit to retain a more positive, hopeful outlook than the opposite. Let's take questions or comments. Rabbi, only because there's not a, another question being fielded, the, you know, the challenge is always in such relationships um, when one individual is ready to enter and try and um, the other may not be as ready and not willing, able to uh, come to the table. So I'm not sure uh, if you have any th uh, thoughts on that. It, it's um, it's a real problem. Uh, we've discussed this in the past, even a few years ago. And if you just use the example that I was raising before, for people who are unwilling to approach life with a real learning attitude, it's a, a very, very, very difficult problem to overcome. Uh, 
because if in no area of their life do they really have an openness to things that they don't think of themselves or you know things that they might think are impossible it's very very big challenge the only thing to do is to show them that you yourself can be different and that very often does instigate the thought that not only not only that you might be different but that perhaps you know people can change including themselves it, it tends to have that that possible effect but it is difficult no question uh, one of the things that we've suggested in the past is highlighting to the other person their positives um, a great one is to highlight a positive that you've never highlighted before which would be like an epiphany to them that you are able to see it and something that they probably gave up on uh, you ever appreciating about that Okay, something Obviously, the best thing is for people to you know have that humility to be open to learn something new it's true that very often that's uh, a real challenge davening is good rabbi thank you a lot of insight <laughs> never looked at him i never looked at him this way thank you thank you i've been in uh you're on mute uh, sorry no, very interesting, but how about a case uh, where the person is willing, but he's really not able, you know he's not able. Not able to make the change that you yeah, let, 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 let's give it, let's give it, let's give an example. You know for a fact that he has a certain insensitivity, uh, uh, Ruvain has a certain insensitivity to Shimon. Shimon has, you know, work through certain things and he notices that the person is just literally psychologically insensitive to certain uh, you know his 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 covid or whatever his feelings just like, like that that's a very simple thing he's totally insensitive to his feelings the guy says oh i want to make up but he knows from fact that the person is literally insensitive so the guy can say i want to make up with you but he can't do it because he's psychologically insensitive yeah, I, I mean, I, I hear that question, and I, there's really different aspects to it. Um, just because he's demonstrated that in the past doesn't mean that it's impossible in the future. I know that's hard to believe, but it's also true. It's hard to live in that mindset, even with, especially because the past has proven that to be the case thus far. That's true. Uh, but another uh, major aspect is that we don't have to expect another person to change. We just have to stay open to the fact that they could. So the typical reaction in that case is, okay, so we write that person off and we greatly limit the ability for anything to ever change. And the real answer is, okay, no, no, so I, no, I don't, no, no, I don't, I don't really, I don't really mean, I don't really mean it in that way. Uh, I see what you're saying, but I don't mean it in that way per se. I'm saying, let's, Let's get the situation. You know the person's insensitive, so it's not that you write him off. I, I hear that point. No, I don't mean you write him off. I'm talking where you're just protecting yourself. Was, since the person's totally insensitive, you know dealing with him is only going to hurt you. So you don't write him off per se. You act pleasantly with him, but you're not, you know, there's no use to try to develop a relationship because he really down deep doesn't want to, or he can't even. So, psychologically bound by not being able to do that. Yeah. So I, I actually feel like I, I'm in the middle of one of those situations and I've been actively working on that problem. 
And what I've come to with, with some advice and help is that we can decide to have a meaningful conversation about it face-to-face or or that's one option and then we can see where it goes obviously that needs to be thought about well how that conversation goes where the issue is addressed head-on or we can just basically take a wait and see attitude where we don't so to speak invest more into the relationship both in time or effort and we just see you know what the other person kind of puts out there and then we're careful that we don't over give and overextend something that may not be appreciated and um, properly respected. That's actually literally where I'm at uh, on this topic, uh, literally of today. (laughs) I'm in in the middle of of it. What's that? I'm only laughing because that in my personal in my personal situation, I've done done that been there, meaning that I've extended myself. I, I've discussed it openly and just the opposite. That's what I found out lack of total sensitivity. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's okay. what I'm saying. So, I, so I, I think, I think that's, so it's, yeah, so yeah, that's, so I, uh, you're right then. If you've really done those steps, then there isn't uh, something more to work on now, but hopefully they'll change. You know, you just don't expose, you know, you just don't uh, make yourself vulnerable to it. It's not, <laughs> but okay, fine. I, you know, but I, I just want to know if there was a next step to take uh, under the, under the circumstances that they, the, no, the, the only other one is what I'm suggesting to Frida that, that I also have tried and I think does work is to show appreciation in different ways, because sometimes they can see that you can change and you can appreciate about them and that can help. Well, okay. But I'm just, I'm saying that, even though they expressed it, they didn't mean yeah. it. And I, I, I had proof for it later on. <laughs> okay, I don't so, know. Maybe maybe, you know, maybe uh, more on that another time. But, <laughs> but I have okay. tried that one. All right. it does. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, thank good. you so much. Uh, thank you. Rabiakov. Yeah, I just wanted to say regarding what Yechiel is talking about, that there's an approach called being curious and compassionate that when we see somebody else doing something which is like totally off the page for us, instead of us reacting with like, wow, this person's like, you know, they really don't get it. There's an approach to be like compassionate to wonder what's going on in that person's life that puts them in that position and to be curious about that and approach it with compassion. And sometimes I found that that helps me when I'm dealing with people that seem to me to be totally not aware Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, that that instead of just kind of automatically interpreting and you know uh, judging, right? We we have a more like openness to what could be and seeing things from their paradigm. It definitely can be extremely helpful. Uh, sometimes, uh, which I think we're is talking about, sometimes they kind of try to push us to be involved with them in ways that you know are not good for us. Uh, and we have to not allow that to happen until we know that they're ready for it. That, that's the part of it that we were just uh, talking about right. before. But I agree with you. As far as they go, definitely curiosity and compassion is very helpful. All right. Okay. Right. Okay, everybody. I think we're good. Thank you all so much. Um, well, last point is just the when can we speak? You said yeah. So, uh, Rebecca, I'm going to text you, okay? Fine. Thank you.
Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay.